Section 10 of Shakespeare Identified. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Looney. The Stratfordian View, Part 9. It remains now only to examine the data upon which rests the theory of William Shakespeare being an eminent London actor. Neither as a writer of plays for the stage, nor as an author of works for the press, is it possible to account for his wealth. In the former capacity his income would not be a handsome one, and in the latter capacity, seeing that he took no part and held no rights, he would depend upon goodwill gratuities from publishers. As an actor, we have seen, no single record of his appearance in the provinces has been discovered. It is as a London actor, therefore, that he must have made his wealth, if that wealth had nothing mysterious about it. Here, then, are the records of his career. Hallowell Phillips had the pleasure of discovering some years ago, in the accounts of the treasurer of the chamber, the following entry. To William Kemp, William Shakespeare, and Richard Burbage, servants to the Lord Chamberlain, upon the council's warrant dated at Whitehall, Roman 15, to Marsige, 1594, for two several comedies or interludes, showed by them before Her Majesty in Christmas time last past, viz., upon St. Stephen's Day and Innocent's Day, in all twenty pounds. Mrs. Stopes, however, in her work on Burbage and Shakespeare, furnishes the interesting information that this account was drawn up after date by Mary Countess of Southampton, after the decease of her second husband, Sir Thomas Hennage, who had left his accounts rather in a muddle. And Sir Sidney Lee points out that neither plays nor parts are named. We may also point out that whereas, according to the last-named authority, Kemp was the chief comedian of the day, and Richard Burbage the greatest tragic actor, no record exists to tell us, and no one has yet ventured to guess, what William Shakespeare was as an actor. Since then, no part is assigned to him in this record. It is possible, even accepting it as being in proper order, as an official document, that he received the money as the supposed author of the comedies or interludes. And this, although occurring three years before the opening of the period of his fame, 1597, is the only thing that can be called an official record of active participation in the performances of the Lord Chamberlain's company afterwards called the King's Players, and erroneously spoken of as Shakespeare's Company, the company of which he is supposed to have been one of the leading lights. The orthodoxy of Mrs. Stopes, like that of Halliwell Phillips, is beyond suspicion, and she has performed, in respect to William Shakespeare's London career, something analogous to what Halliwell Phillips has done for his work in the provinces, and with a not altogether dissimilar result. In note 28 of the book just mentioned, she records the performances of the Burbage Company at court for 80 years, the record consisting mainly of a catalogue of brief items of payments made by the treasurer of the chamber for actual performances of plays, and occupying 17 pages of her work. Over four pages are taken up with entries referring to performances of the company from 1597 to the death of William Shakespeare in 1616. 
Separate entries occur for the years 1597 to 1616, except 1602. The names of the actors mentioned are Hemming, Burbage, Cowley, Bryan, and Pope. Elsewhere, these official accounts mention the actor Augustine Phillips, but not once does the name of William Shakespeare occur in all these accounts. There is a danger that in multiplying evidences and opening up discussions on side issues, the full force of some particular facts may be lost. We would urge, therefore, that the reader allow his mind to dwell at length on one fact, namely, that the whole of the municipal records of the acting companies are silent with regard to William Shakespeare, and the whole of the treasurer of the chamber's records, with the one irregular exception of an account made by a strange hand after date, are equally silent respecting him. Even the irregular entry referring to a date, 1594, several years before the period of his fame, so that both are absolutely silent respecting him during his great period. If the reader still persists in believing that William Shakespeare was a well-known figure on the stage, or a prominent member of the Lord Chamberlain's company of actors, or in any way much in evidence in connection with the doings of that company, we would respectfully suggest that his time could be more profitably spent than in reading the remainder of these pages. Following up the investigations by means of the same work, we find that the Lord Chamberlain's books supply much information concerning plays and players. Unfortunately, they are missing for the most important years of Shakespearean history. Twice in the course of her work does Mrs. Stopes refer to the unfortunate disappearance of the Lord Chamberlain's books. In the light of all the other mysterious silences regarding William Shakespeare, and the total disappearance of the Shakespeare manuscripts, so carefully guarded during the years preceding the publication of the first folio, the disappearance of the Lord Chamberlain's books, recording the transactions of his department for the greatest period in its history, hardly looks like pure accident. More than one contemporary forgery in respect to Shakespeare records is admitted by most authorities, a well-known one being the 1611 reference to The Tempest, so that suspicion is quite justifiable. The one volume of these records that has been preserved records nothing of any acting engagement of William Shakespeare's, but merely his receiving, along with others, a grant of cloth in preparation for the coronation procession, whilst stating that many believe that the players did not go on that procession. Mrs. Stopes argues in favor of their being there, but adds, It is true the grant of cloth was not in itself an invitation to the coronation. It is therefore no evidence that he was present. Similarly, the appearance of his name in the list of members of the company, licensed in 1603 for prospective activity as the king's players, furnishes no proof of his recognition as a prominent actor, and leaves us ignorant of the plays in which he may have participated, the roles which he performed, or the manner of his acting. All that we have of an official nature during this period are therefore two appearances of his name in general non-informative lists, quite consistent with the theory that during the most important years of what is supposed to have been his great London period, he was not in constant personal touch with the business of the company. Of non-official acting records, we again give the facts in the words of Sir Sidney Lee. Shakespeare's name stands first on the list of those who took part in the original performance of Ben Jonson's Every Man in His Humor, 
1598, the year in which Johnson, having been imprisoned for killing Gabriel Spencer, was liberated, apparently as a result of influential intervention. In the original edition of Johnson's Sejunus, 1605, the actors' names are arranged in two columns, and Shakespeare's name heads the second column. But here again, the part allotted to each actor is not stated. Nor is it mentioned that this list was only published two years after the performance, 1603. These two appearances of his name are the only things that might be called records of his acting during the whole period of his fame. The first at its beginning, and the second, according to several authorities, at its close. There is no doubt he never meant to return to London, except for business visits after 1604. National Encyclopedia. We know neither what parts he played nor how he played them. But the one thing we do know is that they had nothing to do with the great Shakespeare plays. There is not a single record during the whole of his life of his ever appearing in a play of Shakespeare's. Whilst the writer responsible for the appearance of his name in these instances is the same as lent the sanction of his name to the deliberate inaccuracies of the first folio. It is worth while noticing that although Johnson gives a foremost place to the name of Shakespeare in these lists, when Johnson's Every Man Out of His Humor was played by the Lord Chamberlain's company, the whole of the company, with one notable exception, had parts assigned to them. That one exception was Shakespeare, who does not appear at all in the cast. See the collected works of Johnson. Other striking absences of William Shakespeare's name in connection with this particular company remain to be noticed. The company became implicated in the Essex Rebellion, and Augustine Phillips, one of the members, had to present himself for examination in connection with it. His statement, made on oath and formally attested with his signature, involves a play of Shakespeare's, Richard II. William Shakespeare himself was, however, quite out of the business. He was not called upon, and his name was not even mentioned in connection with the play, which is spoken of as so old and so long out of use. Again, in August 1604, the company was appointed to attend on the Spanish ambassador at Somerset House, and were paid for their services. Augustine Phillips and John Hemmings, for the allowance of themselves and ten of their fellows, for the space of eighteen days, receiving £21.12. shillings. We again notice the absence of the name of one whom we have been taught to regard as the chief personality in the company. The modern Stratfordian postpones Shakespeare's retirement to Stratford to the year 1612 or 1613. In 1612, the company was engaged in litigation, and the names of John Hemmings, Richard Burbage, and Henry Condal appear in connection with it, but there is no mention of Shakespeare. On the installation of Prince Henry as Prince of Wales, the service of the company was enlisted, and the names of Anthony Munday, Richard Burbage, and John Rice occur in the official records, the first as writer and the last two as actors, but no mention is made of the great writer-actor, William Shakespeare. In 1613, the Globe Theatre, the supposed scene of William Shakespeare's great triumphs, was burnt to the ground, and a contemporary poet sang of the event in verses that commemorate Anthony Munday, Richard Burbage, Henry Cundell, and the father of John Hemming, but without ever a backward glance at the retiring or retired William Shakespeare, 
whose name has immortalized the name of the building. After such a contemporary record, the appearance of his name in the 1623 folio edition, seven years after his death, at the head of the list of the principal actors in all these plays, confirms the bogus character of the whole of the editorial pretensions of that work. With such a send-off, it is remarkable that subsequent tradition has done so little for him. More than eighty years later, Rowe, in his Life of Shakespeare, 1709, assigns but one role to the principal actor in all these plays, namely, the ghost in Hamlet. This tradition, though quite unreliable, seeing that the whole body of Shakespearean tradition is mixed with much that is now known to be untrue, is nevertheless interesting, for the role of the ghost in Hamlet is just such as a third-rate man about the theatre might have been trained to perform upon occasion. The discussion of the shifting sands of Shakespearean tradition hardly comes within the province of this work. It is interesting to note, however, that Mrs. Stopes flatly refuses to believe the body of Shakespeare traditions, for the very substantial reason that they arose at too late a period after the events. How little of solid biographical fact remains, when mere tradition is discounted, the general reader, who simply interests himself in the plays, is seldom aware. It is possible that we may have omitted the discussion of some contemporary reference which others might consider important. Enough, however, has been said to show that William Shakespeare's connection with the Lord Chamberlain's company was of a distinctly anomalous character. On the other hand, there are distinct traces of an effort to give him a marked prominence in respect to the constitution and operations of the company, and on the other hand, a total absence of the inevitable concomitance of such a prominence. What others, using him as an instrument for their purposes, were able to do with his name is done. What could only be brought about by the force of his own genius is lacking. Outside the formal lists of names, no single contemporary that we know of records an event or impression of him as an actor during all the years of his literary fame. It may safely be said, therefore, that neither in the provinces nor in London did the public who were buying and reading Shakespeare's plays know much about William Shakespeare, the actor. Even the objectionable anecdote which represents Burbage in the dramatic role of Richard III does not imply dramatic functions of any kind for Shakespeare, but represents him as a silent listener, not necessarily one living in the public eye. A person whom some one in the outside public might have thought of as implicated in the inner workings of the company. In the face of so pronounced a silence in respect to him, why should there have been these two efforts of Johnson's to thrust his name forward as an actor in a way which neither the records of the Lord Chamberlain's company, nor the constitution of the cast for his own play, every man out of his humor, warranted? And how does it happen, in view of the total silence of the records of the Lord Chamberlain's company during all the years, both before and after, that his name was inserted twice in one year, 1603, in the business formalities of the company. In a word, how does it happen that we have the name occupying an artificial eminence in two connections and nothing else to correspond? The most natural answer is, of course, that false claims were being made for him, fitting in exactly with the admitted false pretensions of the first folio, in which the same party, Ben Johnson, was implicated. In the matter of motives, however, 
we again put in a plea for Johnson that he is entitled to the same indulgence as has been freely accorded to Hemmings and Condell, although he probably was deeper in the secret than they were. End of section 10